the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Mike, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing pretty darn well. Um, as I've already told you guys before, my cat, not so much. He's been diagnosed with kitty sleep apnea, and he has to sleep with a kitty CPAP machine um, that we have to wrestle him into every wait, time. Wait, wait, hold on. No. Okay. No, absolutely not. See, you picked up on that a lot faster than uh, my youngest boyfriend did, but still, that's fine. Well, here's my rationale for that. One, that we can't be that close to the end of the world that they're actually making CPAP machines for cats. Two, you sound pretty good for a guy who would have had to have been clawed to shreds for trying to put that mask onto a cat. I've lost a lot of blood. Are you currently on like three different IVs? Are you getting a transfusion as we're speaking See, the thing is, I can't imagine a kitty feeling all that sleepy after that much panic hits its system with a thing on it wrestled onto its face. Just have this this image of the cat with the thing on its face, breathing through it and looking like Bane. <laughs> like, I'm just imagining Tad Cooper's reaction, who would be terrified of the sounds coming from the machine, trying to run away from it as the hose is attached to his face. I'm picturing you and your wife and kids trying to put it on to the cat, and the scene quickly goes from a nice G-rated Tom and Jerry cartoon to a hard R for violence, blood, and gore. That <laughs> is a very likely and profanity. Outcome. Yeah, <laughs> most of the profanity from the cat. Yes, because as <laughs> as has been established, Tad Cooper's got a mouth on him. <laughs> oh gosh! Oh, that cat. So that's how I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian, up... <laughs> I, I hope things are slightly less sanguine for you. I, I cannot. Oh, nice vocabulary. I, know, I like it. Right? <laughs> I, I cannot compete with that. No. Uh, <laughs> but... Things are ordinary here. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, James? You know, it's been a rough week. All of my kids have been sick. My darling wife, Joy, she uh, had COVID. Um, so not great there. And somehow I missed most of it except for about three or four days ago. And then something did finally hit me, not COVID. Thank the Lord. But it's left me feeling horrible, uh, rough nights of sleep. But after hearing about the cat CPAP, I, my spirits are lifted. So thank you. <laughs> it's the best I've felt in a while. It just keeps getting better. The more you think about it. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> So with that in mind, does anybody want to kick off Geek Out? I will do so. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is uh, something that happened just a few days ago. As of the recording of this podcast, it made me truly happy and hopeful. I'm talking about the launch of NASA's Artemis One mission back to the moon. Oh, yeah. It's the first time that we've had a a mission like this since Apollo 17, which was in 1972. And while this was an unmanned flight, they're testing the vehicle and the equipment, which will be used to send a manned team back to the moon 
Uh, hopefully within the next year, we'll begin to see the, the construction of a lunar base, uh, a permanent presence of astronauts there, and the beginning of the next step, which will take us to Mars. I stayed up late to watch the launch, but it's been a long time since I have felt such adrenaline, anxiety, and hope, and a touch of fear. Because anyone who has studied the history of NASA, especially during the 60s, you're going to know an awful lot of those rockets blew up. Some of them didn't even get off the launch pad. And I'll admit, I was kind of on the edge of my seat and even saying a prayer like, Lord, I know in the grand scheme of things of mankind and, and all the needs of the world, this is very small, but please let nothing happen. Please let this go off without a hitch. I just feel that we need this. To be fair, I'd say that the safety record has gone considerably up since then, but oh, absolutely. also they're not batting a thousand, so... Mm -hmm. And I think all of us uh, probably vividly remember uh, the Challenger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That lives very large in my in my consciousness whenever I think about the space program. I can never forget that that image. Challenger, and of course, more recently, the Columbia. Mm -hmm. But it took off and was beautiful. Just as the seconds, instead of counting down, we're counting up. Artemis is now going... Uh, 850 miles per hour, 1,000 miles per hour, 12,000 miles per hour. That number just kept going up. And now we're, you know, a minute and something. We are reaching over 16,000 miles per hour. And I'm like, I can't even fathom that. And here we are one step closer to a settlement on Luna. I was actually messaging with a friend of mine who, as a doctorate in rocket science, I saw he was online. I'm like, dude, are you watching the launch? And he's like, oh, yes. <laughs> and I was asking him some questions. And he's like, those engines, those RS-25s are truly incredible pieces of engineering. They are big engines, and they have an almost incomprehensible amount of power on launch. It's always been a dream of mine to take my family to a launch. I think that the experience and to actually see it, to feel it, and to hear the rockets go off would be unforgettable. As that mission continues, be prepared for more uh, NASA geek outs in the future, friends. <laughs> I'm prepared. Good. Yeah, I'm kind of like preaching to the choir with that one. <laughs> so uh, I've got quite a few other things, so I'll fly through them as quickly as possible. So I finally did it. Mike, I finally started reading the Expanse novels. Yeah. I started about three weeks ago, and I'm in the middle of book four right now. Yeah, you um, have lapped me then. Like you've not yeah. you've not just gone past me; you've gone one lap around. <laughs> yep, I'm in book four called Cibola, Cibola. I don't know how it's pronounced. Cibola Burn. I've not had the biggest interest in science fiction. Anytime I've read science fiction in the past, nine out of ten times it's been Star Wars related. So um, you like fantasy set in space? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay, there's, there's no shame in that. You know, most of the other books I read are, that are fiction are either going to be fantasy or historical fiction. But this has been so much fun. Some parts of the books, I won't give away any spoilers, a little harder to read, a little darker than I was expecting. But they've been written well. The characters are great. At the same time, I've gone back and I've decided I'm going to start re-watching some of the TV show as well. I never did get all the way through the first season of the Amazon series, so I started from the beginning. And I'm being very careful that the episodes I watch do not lap the books that I have read. 
it gets weird. So yeah, yeah. I'm at the very beginning of season two, which is still dealing with events from the first book. Right. So I think I'll be okay for a while. I do want to make one point on casting. We brought this up a couple of times on the podcast. Anytime that you read a book, people, especially us, will tend to create in their minds what they think a character looks like, either a original creation in our head, or we tend to think of someone in Hollywood who has similar characteristics to what we read in the book. Now, when I did watch the TV show, I liked the people who I had in my head better than what was on the screen, with two exceptions. One, Avasarala, absolutely perfect. I could listen to her voice all day long. And the second one is Amos. Whatever I had in my head booted right out the door, that guy is Amos. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Moving on from those, and I'll be reading them for quite a while. You said there were about nine books and then a couple of novellas? I think so. That ought to last me till maybe January. See, um, I've kind of gotten stuck on book three with whenever there's Anna's perspective, because as a clergy person reading a science fiction writer writing clergy, it just it's just nails against the chalkboard, man. <laughs> I see, keep... I thought that you'd be very approving of her and what she does in the book kind of vibes with a lot of what I experienced at 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 Bible college. I mean, I remember Taser 101. I mean, she's taken more than a few classes in Taser. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote Kaja a brief message about what to do about Anna as a as a prospective clergy candidate in the credentialing program. And she loved that email because, <laughs> oh boy, my recommendations. I bet. <laughs> Moving on from The Expanse, I have really been enjoying the few RPG sessions that I've had with the group that I play Tales of the Loop with. In honor of uh, one of our players' birthday, we started the classic D&D module Tomb of Horrors. And what I think was originally supposed to have been like a one-night adventure has turned into three different sessions so far with more on the way. Not because it's, you know, a difficult module, but because we just are really taking our time with this thing. (laughs) We're knocking on every wall. We're using the tuning fork on every floor tile. We're opening up every single chest in a room, even when we shouldn't. <laughs> While somebody in the back room is like, does anybody have the Cheetos? <laughs> if you notice a little bit of angst in my voice and bitterness when I talked about the opening of the chest, that's because there is, but it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's not it's fine. It's not fine. Tales through the loop. You cannot die. And the group is just so paranoid about splitting up. And then we drop them into Tomb of Horrors. Tomb of Horrors, of all things. Notorious for being a deadly dungeon. And they split four ways. Wow. <laughs> that is some cognitive dissonance. We're straight up asking for it at this point. We're just basically thumbing our noses at the GM saying, do your worst. Come on, do it. Do it. I dare you. <laughs> just okay, just, real, just real, real quickly. I, I find a room. And all I do is I call the others, hey, guys, found a room. I'm going to go in by myself. (laughs) Okay, bye. Gosh. That's verbatim. (laughs) And there's three chests. I try one. It had a a, a pretty ring. Oh, it had a ring and deadly darts, but the darts missed me. And I open up the next one, 
a, a swarm of poisonous snakes come out. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, okay, Brian, if they let you choose what monsters you can put into this module, you and I are about to have an issue because you, you've made this one a little too on the nose for me. It's called the Tomb of Horrors for a reason. So, James, what I'm hearing you say is snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? You are exactly right. Okay. And I'll completely own up. I have a phobia of snakes. I do. And even the guys were like, James, is there a story you want to tell about this? I'm like, yeah, but I'm not telling you. Yeah, the story begins, asps. Very dangerous. You You go go first. first. (laughs) So one of the other characters comes in, and he's like, oh, there's another chest. I'm like, wait, don't open that chest. He opens the chest, and a giant skeleton appears, slashes him up, and he turns into smoke, and he runs away. (laughs) So I'm left in a room. Uh, oh, by the way, when I found the room and I figured out the door, it dropped me into the room from a 10-foot drop. And I'm a dwarf, by the way. <laughs> so it basically was like a 13-foot drop. <laughs> so there I am, giant skeleton wielding a scimitar, swarm of poisonous snakes. It was a great day for James. running away. It happened so fast. I, I was a little miffed, but he was playing his character. You know, all of our characters have flaws and characteristics. He was playing his character. And I also have to give him the benefit of the doubt that if I just had a giant skeleton appear six inches in front of me, slash me three times for a huge amount of damage, because Brian's damage rolls were hot. They were really hot. I probably would have, as they say in Bluey, made a fluffy and then ran. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the joke that we uh, used was that was the gas and go. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was an interesting time. But including that, it's been a great adventure. And any great adventure is to be made great by the people you're with. And uh, I've got a really great group of people who I've been gaming with. Brian's been doing a great job as the GM. So thank you. It's been a really enjoyable experience. For as little as I've gotten to game the last couple of years, this has just been has been really enjoyable. Uh, just a couple of things left in my geek out. Joy and I have been watching a Masterpiece Theater show, All Creatures Great and Small. Uh, it was a show originally made back in the 70s, but they redid it just like back in 2020. Uh, it's about veterinarians in a small town in England set during the 30s and 40s. And that premise alone completely grabbed Joy and I. Like, yes, we are all over this show. That's how much of Anglophiles she and I are. (laughs) It's been really enjoyable. Unfortunately, you have to have like a Masterpiece Theater subscription to watch it on Amazon Prime. The original is on BBC, BBC America, BritBox, and more. In fact, it might also be on Prime. Um, We've also been doing a lot of gaming together, Joy and I. I talked about a year or so ago that we played Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance and we really enjoyed playing that together because we had played it on the original Xbox, like back when we were first married. And it's only a matter of timing. We knew they were going to make the second one, which we both agreed was the more enjoyable game. And they did. They made Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance 2. They you know, cleaned up the graphics, better sound. Not that it was like, well, it was the original Xbox game. So you get a little clunky at times. But they made it look good. They kept a lot of the mechanics that we enjoyed. Uh, as far as how the magic system was used, the leveling up, 
and also the crafting system. Throughout the game, you can find or buy gemstones, which if you get a weapon or piece of armor that is better than normal, like there's different levels. There's like a fine, grand, uh, flawless, and so on. Those you can enchant. And using runestones and a number of gemstones, you can add attributes to them, like fire damage. They increase your constitution, uh, faster attack speed, so on and so forth. And we got pretty crazy. The only thing holding us back was the amount of gold that we could get our hands on as far as crafting some absolutely absurd and dangerous things. We actually just recently finished Dark Alliance 2. And we're kind of bummed. We played and finished It Takes Two. Then right after that, we saw that they had made Dark Alliance 2. And now we finished that and we're like, we need a new game. So listeners, if there's any great local co-op games that you know of on either the PlayStation or the Switch, let us know. Joy and I would be very grateful if you did. We're always on the lookout for great couch co-op games. And unfortunately, it's not a style that they make a lot of anymore. And I think that's a crime. Now, I enjoy playing online with friends, but I also really enjoy playing next to my wife. So any suggestions, I'm all ears. And that's going to wrap it up for my geek out. Well, gaming with your wife is is better than gaming on the internet anyway, because like joy is better than all those people on the internet anyway. So like that's oh yes, right, <laughs> completely agree. So, who is next? Uh, I'll pick it up from there. Uh, so this is episode fifty-two, and so it seems imperative that we have to talk about DC Comics somewhere because that seems to be a number that they love over there. <laughs> so I went and watched uh, Black Adam. That is one I've been wanting to see, and I'm hoping to catch it before it leaves theaters. How yeah. was it? From the day they announced that Dwayne Johnson was going to be playing Black Adam, I thought, this is the perfect casting for this character. Yeah, it's going to rock. imagine anybody else playing it. Uh, and he brought all the Dwayne Johnson-ness that I could have ever wanted to the role. <laughs> um, it's not a fantastic movie, but... It was exactly the kind of movie that I want. I wanted it to be. Well, you know, let, it's like, let's not compare it to all of the films that are available in the world. How is it for a DC movie? Let's put that rubric on it. <laughs> uh, it's pretty dang good for a DC movie. Okay. Um, I didn't like it as much as Shazam, but as we have discussed in the past, I had some extra emotional stuff going on with Shazam. I loved getting to see the... Uh, the Justice League. Um, they've got Dr. Fate and Hawkman. Justice League um, or Justice Society? Justice Society. You're right. Sorry, I misspoke. Getting to see Dr. Fate on screen was just fantastic. He was so cool. And wasn't he played by Pierce Brosnan? Pierce Brosnan. Really? That's, fan- that's a fantastic casting for that character. That was a good choice. So yeah, it was, it was action-y. It was kind of brainless. You know, it's the John Wick of superhero movies. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of chaos. <laughs> it had some good pro wrestler one-liners. <laughs> I didn't know Black Adam's eyebrow could go that high. Was it? Here's the question: Was it well shot chaos? Because that that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was mostly all in the daytime, so they had to really, really double down on making sure everything was going to look good. I mean, mm. you got the. Uh, the Dr. Fate helmet's going to reflect everything. It's a shiny and gold. Um, and they did a they did a really nice job. There are a couple of things that is like, eh, that doesn't really work out 
how so was well for me personally, but how was the character Hawkman? Because that's always been one that I was unsure how well he would translate to screen. Uh, he worked out pretty well uh, in terms of his visual look and they, they didn't go into his background, which I appreciated because I think the current uh, Hawkman mythology is he's an alien. And I always liked the, he's continuously reincarnated version better. Mm -hmm. um, but they just sidestepped that and didn't say where he came from. But yeah, he's the physicality of the actor. I don't remember his name. I'll save um, it for the Hawkman movie coming July, 2027. Right. Uh, but he had a, a real strong screen presence, even with the helmet on his face. And uh, he didn't really channel as much of the character as I think he might have um, in terms of just his his attitudes. But that wasn't really the point of the movie. If I were to say what the weakest part of it was, it was the, the little kid that they had as the, the kind of viewpoint character. Um, and also as the narrator at the beginning is like, he was a little weak in terms of uh, his performance, but he's also just a kid. I mean, he was maybe 11 or 12, so you can't expect a whole lot. <laughs> I don't know. I watched Kirsten Dunst's interview with a vampire, and that set the bar pretty high. <laughs> yes, well, those are rare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. Uh, so overall, it's, it's an enjoyable movie. Um, and, you know, I... I had a, a Tuesday evening free. It's like, hey, I'm going to go to the movies. What's playing? It's like, Black Adam, I'm there. Um, I understand it's already been blown out of the water in terms of ticket sales by uh, Wakanda Forever, but we all knew that was going to happen. So, yeah. No oh, this is me being terrible. That's hit theaters already? Yeah. <laughs> like, I should Last know weekend. it was filmed in my neighborhood in part. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you didn't tell me you lived in Wakanda. I. I live near MIT. So. <laughs> MIT is close to everywhere. It's all those teleporters. Well, MIT right. is close to everywhere here because they have bought so much lab space. It's crazy. But anyway. <laughs> it's a little bit like Snapchat in Santa Monica. I can only imagine. You're always about three blocks away from Snapchat because they don't have a real office. They just bought a lot of apartments. <laughs> so many tourists coming out of the Kendall MIT station and you can spot them. So they walk up and then they look around and then they look kind of deflated and confused. And they're like, are you looking for a place? Like we're looking for MIT. Where is MIT? Like it's, it's there, 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 and there. MIT isn't the place so much as it is a state of mind. <laughs> I'm going to do that next time and watch them throttle me. <laughs> anyway uh i've no, also they'll been just I... they'll look at you inside and go oh pause go to another person excuse me can you tell us where mit is <laughs> don't ask a philosophy teacher yeah <laughs> i have also been rereading uh lord of the rings nice in order to rinse the taste of the rings of power out of my brain i thought you were going to say to better critique it <laughs> see that's the what brian said is what he tells himself what you said is what's going to actually happen <laughs> i plead the fifth they're not mutually exclusive right <laughs> it's been a long time since i since my last reread and i'm i was a little nervous and i was like i know this story so well that i think i'm going to be bored but there's 
enough that I've forgotten enough that I think I'm more mature enough now to, to grasp a little better. That has been a really, really nice experience. I didn't expect, I was like, I thought it was going to be like my last reread of the wheel of time where it's like, okay, I can skip the next 40 pages. Cause I remember this almost verbatim. Just 40 pages. <laughs> He's being <laughs> modest. It was yeah. more like 140. I was going to say two <laughs> books. Well, you know, I was, I was talking about, you know, the later books like Lord of chaos. I don't remember so well. Okay. Great hunt. I could probably almost recite <laughs> in your sleep. So all you have to do is just set up a recording and now you've just got a new audio book. That's it. Never mind. No, no. We're not <laughs> now I kind of want to do that. <laughs> just release recordings of what I say in my sleep. Highly edited, of course. Now that's a podcast. That will not be coming out on the Geek at Arms channel. No, we cannot no. do this. <laughs> anyway, in terms of my anime watching, because I've been doing that very steadily, uh, I picked a show just because it had a weird title that would make James's face do that thing. So I watched a certain scientific railgun. Okay, Wait, so that's an anime? That's the title of an anime? I, like, I that thought that title. you were going to be talking about a certain... Scientific railgun. Yeah, I'm like. (laughs) Yes, that is why I picked it because it makes James do that. Like now, like now that we're saying it out loud, like of course that's an anime title because why would Brian say he wants to talk about a certain scientific railgun? He would just say such and such and such and such type of railgun and then talk about it. But no, it's an. Of course, it's an. This is your geek out. You have you have at it, Brian. Uh, So the premise of this show is it's set in. Academy City, which is a middling-sized city that is almost entirely populated by students. And it seems to be a uh, an experiment of some kind because most of these students are also psychics. Of course they are! Yeah, no, and all of their parents are either away or dead. Yeah, well, it's anime. The parents aren't allowed to move to the town. <laughs> so all of these teenagers living almost completely unsupervised in this town, and they all have powerful psychic abilities. Why am I not watching this already? (laughs) (laughs) The main character is uh, Mikoto Misaka, and she is uh, an extremely powerful uh, electrokinetic. They have a a rating scale from level zero, which is people that are technically psychic, but it's all latent and they don't even maybe know what their abilities are, all the way up to level five, which is what uh, Misaka is. I do give them uh, points for not calling the highest level S-class which seems to be <laughs> prevalent in many power-based right. animes. And so there's only, there's only about seven of these level, level five. Uh, they call them espers. I think that's ESPers. Yep. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, and so she's one of only seven of these level fives, and they nicknamed her Railgun because of her ability to launch a coin at supersonic speeds. Okay, that actually is a pretty boss nickname. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> And uh, she's got the the other main characters are uh, her roommate, Shirai, who is a level four teleporter uh, who works for an organization called Judgment. And again, entire city full of teenagers. And so most of the jobs are being held by these young people. What could possibly Uh, go wrong? Right. So Judgment is what it's it's some kind of a civil patrol quasi police force. Uh, They don't do the actual enforcement, but they do the... uh, the helping people out and investigating end of the police work. So this 13 year old girl who can teleport on the police force and uh, 
their mutual friend Uiharu, who is a level one, capable of slightly changing the temperature of something she's touching, which she uses to keep the bagels warm as she's delivering Ooh. them to the office. Is her code name Hot Pot? <laughs> <laughs> no, apparently only the the level fives get the the cool nicknames. Everybody else just have to has to use a real name. Well, I'm calling gotcha. her Hot Pot. I don't care what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and then Hot Pot's best friend is Satin, who is level zero, and they do this this thing because you've got you know. This girl, uh, Misaka, who is effectively Magneto, uh, maybe even a little stronger than Magneto because she can also do computer hacking just with her brain because she's so electrical. Um, all the way down to girl with a baseball bat, uh, whose main characteristic is she likes to investigate urban legends and rumors. And so she's the one who gets everything, kicks off most of the uh, the storylines because She's discovered something weird, and everybody says, oh, no, that's not real, and then it turns out it is real. See, I think they made the show about the wrong person, because that yeah. actually sounds cool. Like, she sounds like a great like, lens. Well, they did a, a nice thing in the first season, uh, where they actually they really explored that difference in the powers. And I've, I've mentioned in the past how I like sci-fi for its ability to talk abstractly about topics that are hard to approach directly. And I'm going to say one of those words that gets everybody's hackles up sometimes. This difference between the two is really an exploration of privilege because when they first meet Sotten just assumes that Misaka is going to be uh, stuck up and full of her, full of herself because she's famous and she's so powerful. Um, but in fact, Misaka is very uh, self-conscious. Um, she's not comfortable in her own skin in a lot of ways. Um, and she doesn't realize how people view her sometimes. I mean, she's aware of her celebrity but not exactly how people think about that difference in abilities. Hmm. And she's confronted at one point with that. It's like, you are so powerful. You have so much that you can do compared to me. When I get in one of these situations, I'm in terrible danger. Um, and she, she just leans back. And she says, you know, I never really thought about that. Jeez. And it really changed the way she approached the situations that they were in. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a good way of approaching that topic and, framing it in such a way as we're not talking about you. We're talking about these ridiculous superpowered teenagers in a situation that they should not be in because that's just absurd. <laughs> so I really liked that. And this, I was talking about how Misaka is uncomfortable in her skin. They're doing this great thing where uh, all four of these girls are maybe 13 or 14. Uh, Misika is actually the, the oldest of them, um, but she's also the one that's the least uh, developed psychologically. Um, her school uniform includes this miniskirt as because it's anime, um, but she's, you know, uncomfortable with her body. So she always wears shorts under her skirt. Hmm. Um, she sleeps in the uh, really childish print pajamas that her, her roommate always makes fun of her for. She really likes this uh, cartoon character, but she's embarrassed for anybody knowing she likes the cartoon character. Um, and it's like, she is the, the oldest of her, her friend group, but she's also the one that seems the youngest because she just doesn't, she doesn't want to let go of her childhood. And yet at the same time, she's the one that has to actually confront the terrible things that are going on because it's an anime and it's uh, shonen and there's going to be lots of fighting and people throwing around superpowers. That sounds really uh, interesting. What, what platforms can you watch it on? Uh, I've been watching it on Hulu. 
Okay. I don't know. I'm sure it's on uh, that service. I can't remember the name of right now. Crunchyroll. Funimation. Crunchyroll. That oh. one. That's the one. <laughs> it's all probably. I think it's it is a Funimation uh, show, so it'll be on there too. I do have to caution you. There is a uh, somewhat problematic element to it. It's anime. Um, so what? It's what problematic? anime, and so there's some fan service. Okay. And given that, as I said. These characters are 13, 14 years old. And so when, yeah, it doesn't get real bad. I mean, it's not etchy, but it's, uh, and in fact, the, the pervy character is the Shirai, the roommate. And it's, it's mostly okay, but there are a few things where it's like, okay, well, there's a male gaze, uh, camera angle here. And, uh, the, of course the always constant, these are teenage girls and so, and they're in an anime. So they're going to be comparing their bust sizes to one another all the time. Uh, so that stuff is in there. So I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that. And it is particularly in the third season, it gets a little bit, uh, it goes too far occasionally. And this is actually a spinoff of one called a certain magical index, which gets even more troublesome. So I wouldn't watch index at all uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it at all but uh go into railgun with some uh some discernment and be ready for if i would need to tap out yeah yeah uh, particularly the the third season is where it gets quite fan servicey gotcha well uh mike what have you been geeking out to i have been geeking out to quite a few things and i'm gonna slim it down for you um I did want to make mention of a book that I have read uh, since our last episode, and that is Stranger Things Psychology, Life Upside Down. Uh, This book is not yet released. Uh, I have had some conversations with uh, the author, or I should say the editor, uh, Travis Langley, in the past over Twitter. He's done a number of of works that are... um, well, he says that he is a superhero psychologist. So he lives in the crossroads camped between clinical psychology and geek culture. And so he's gotten a number of clinicians together to write a number of works uh, in the geekosphere. Um, just basically seeing uh, clinical elements that kind of unfold in different areas of, of geek culture. And so he does deep dives on he did one on daredevil he did one a really good one on doctor who was probably my favorite of the ones that Mm, he's done yeah that'd be a good one and so he has coming out it is not yet released amazon says it is due out in february of 2023 uh this this book on stranger things psychology and it's an edited anthology so different clinicians will write about different aspects of the television show Some of them are, I would say, more germane to the show than others. Since it's an edited anthology, you've got a number of different authors. So generally, you're going to have, or at least my experience is, I'm into some of the chapters and articles more than I am others. Uh, But I would say that the top picks this time around were really, really good. Uh, There was an article, or sorry, a chapter called An 80s Daydream or Comforting Nightmare. Basically, it was talking about uh, the nostalgia that the film presents 
and says, well, yes, that nostalgia was there for some of you. Uh, however, being a person of color in the 1980s, this film doesn't look like the, doesn't look like what I remember. And here's areas that don't resonate or here's areas where it could have resonated better. Uh, one that was more more clinically focused was called Friends Don't Lie. It's basically an examination of childhood friendship theory. What what makes children become friends? And what are the components and elements of childhood friendship? And how do those things manifest in the characters of Stranger Things? So some of these are deep dives on the characters themselves, or they're deep dives on characters that display actual psychological or clinical identifiable uh, principles. Uh, one of my favorites was A Strange Feeling, uh, an examining, uh, it was basically an examination of conspiracy theory and when it becomes pathological through examining the character of Murray, who is just living in a literal bunker. And they're like, okay, so is this guy, is this guy pathological or is this guy just on the eccentric end of normal? And I thought that was a fascinating character study uh, in, uh, in regards, in regards to that. Um, and also Dr. William Sharp, who, who teaches for a school that I work for, uh, did Stranger Things in first episodes. And he talks about how the very first clinical session that you have with a patient has clues as to really how the rest of the sessions are going to unfold. Like there are patterns and overtures and there's foreshadowing in this clinical examination but you don't have enough experience with the person yet to see how that's going to unfold and kind of paralleling how writers will deliberately lay out the season in the first episode to, to what it looks like in an actual clinical setting. And I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I read this one too. And a lot of the, I'm, I'm kind of like remembering it as you talk about it because I finished it a couple months ago and didn't take any notes. But I do remember specifically the Friends Don't Lie chapter. I found not only very interesting, but also useful for me personally. Hmm. Because I haven't been through very much therapy and I haven't studied these topics very much. Um, and so just being able to, to recognize in my own relationships some of these dynamics was, was useful to me. The anthology uh, format, I thought the downsides of that are that some of the, the uh, essays cover the same ground. Yeah. Um, they're, they're clearly not reading each other. <laughs> um, and some of them just felt like, okay, well I have my particular thing that I want to talk about. It doesn't really fit here, but I'm going to shoehorn it into the show anyway. <laughs> yeah. There were a few that felt like they were talking about a topic and then just making very tangential ties to the show. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that really showed on a couple. Of, I'm not going to name chapters here because I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very visceral reaction to, to the bullying chapter. And part of that was because it just kind of, kind of for some reason replayed in my own head in very living color. Uh, some of the experiences that I had when I was uh, a child and an adolescent while at the same time trying to navigate some bullying 
things that are happening with with my youngest daughter in school. So like while this is happening, I am like working with a dean and reading a student handbook and saying like, well, what, you know, what recourse do we have? Because this is the one thing bullies know how to escape accountability. <laughs> they they, mm-hmm. they know how to pr- identify a victim and use their own power structures to to circumnavigate the rules to victimize to victimize others. And there there was something in that chapter that talked about how to positively progress, you know, how bullies need to have empathy and so what you can do is discuss how these how these things are affecting the feelings of others and I'm, and, and it says surprisingly that is ineffective i'm like what is surprising about that bullies know you have feelings and they're trying to hurt them so yeah but that was i think that my reaction to that chapter was probably more you know a lot that was going on uh, rather than the chapter itself but mm. Um, apart from, but I, I would say overall, my experience with the book was, was generally positive. Um, and I also, you know, I, I go to the, to the clinical panels at PAX East. I kind of have a hobbyist interest in, in psychology, um, and took a lot more hours in it in college than a lot of my other peers who didn't need it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, I think it was interesting when there were character analyses and examinations that were actual themes of the show. So I would recommend when it actually hits shelves. I'm going to make the other couple ones a little bit shorter, um, uh, partly because I don't want to spoil it, but uh, Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic story, watch this on Roku. It's free and the Roku app is free. I don't think that we even needed to create an account. We just downloaded it on our television and played the movie. And oh my gosh, it is such a wonderful biopic on Weird Al Yankovic written by Weird Al Yankovic, which means that it resembles Weird Al Yankovic's life in so much as the names of the songs actually were attributed to Weird Al Yankovic and the names of his parents were actual names that Weird Al Yankovic's parents had. <laughs> and past that, I would say that this biopic is more about how Weird Al Yankovic views biopics than it says about <laughs> Weird Al Yankovic. And I thank him for that. So I've only seen the trailer when I heard that it was going to be Daniel Radcliffe playing Weird Al, I'm like, no, that's that's too different. There's no way he's going to. And then I watched the trailer, and I take it all back. Dude <laughs> sold it. I mean, he sold it. I watched an interview with the two of them. No. And they showed they showed just one clip, uh, the scene where he's uh, playing his his single for the the record exec. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just something in the background. I was like, that record executive looks familiar. That's, that's somebody I know. Wait a minute. <laughs> because, in fact, the record exec telling him that nobody will buy a parody was, in fact, Weird Al himself. <laughs> uh, it was an, an entertaining uh, interview also. I don't remember anything about it. I, I mean, I, I will say this. I think that Derek White, I could be wrong. 
but was explaining to to somebody who was with him what parts of this were real and which ones were not. And I'm like, I kind of feel like that's I kind of feel like that's really, really hard because by the time that he's taking on the drug cartel, you're really you've really, really moved past the point of reality enough that you'd have to say no, 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 no. I don't want to separate the fiction from the reality. I just want to believe it, it could either all be false or it could all be true. Just live in that moment. That's that's yeah. all that I say is just play the film, live in that moment, and enjoy it. I mean, I love Weird Al, and I was not disappointed by, by what they did with this. Well, I remember one of the things he said was that a lot of the things in this movie are made up. A lot of them are true, and I'm not going to tell you which ones are which, but it might surprise you. It's like he's playing a game of two truths and a lie. I, really, really. Um, the only thing I have to say is I really hope Madonna has a good sense of humor. <laughs> she was brilliantly portrayed in this film. Like, accurately true to life, no, but brilliantly portrayed <laughs> in this film. You know, I'm really happy that, thanks to Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe has more money than Scrooge McDuck because... <laughs> Now he can just take the roles he wants. If they're weird, if they're just odd, because it seems that's that's what he's doing. And I'm really glad he is. Yeah, I'm really glad that Daniel Radcliffe stepped into this because seeing him on screen, I don't know who else could have done the job. Now, seeing him play the accordion and singing a verse of My Bologna, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like dude, I'm in. You've sold me. Just wait for his performance when Michael Jackson releases Beat It. That's that's all I got to say, because that moment is beautiful. Cool. In addition, uh, my eldest daughter uh, placed a copy of the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels in my hands and said, Dad, read this. I'm like, <laughs> well, I guess I'm reading it. And I'd watched the movie Scott Pilgrim versus the World, so I was familiar with this, with the with the material, or so I thought. And I really, really kind of wasn't. Um, this was an incredible display of character development that I really did not expect. Uh, have either of you read the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels? No, neither have I. It's it's one of those things where the the first one is amusing, the second one is is pretty good, and you're and I was wondering where on earth is this going to go. But the way that the third one makes the other two better is really incredible. And I guess I should say it's it was released in six books, and she gave it to me in three volumes. So I guess I should say the last two books were really it it really had a lot of character development where in some ways you you start off and Scott is kind of this pathetic character. He's dating this. 17 year old girlfriend and he's in his early 20s so the age gap is enough to be kind of you should you should be uncomfortable with that age gap and he immediately breaks off the relationship for another girl who who shows up on this on the screen Ramona Flowers and you're kind of watching these interactions like Scott you're kind of pathetic but also in some ways that kind of hit home from late adolescence, early adulthood and watching him grow as a character is really, and watching all the other characters also have a trajectory 
also seems really hopeful in in the long run like it it doesn't tie everything up in a nice tidy little bow it just kind of leaves you with a sense of development and hope that i thought was really cool so it's old but i recommend it and lastly on my on my geek out uh i've been playing a lot of a game on the nintendo switch called tunic and it's an it's an indie release that I, I I would say that it it looks very much like a Zelda game. It feels like it was a love letter to Zelda, and it feels like it should have been the Zelda game that came out between A Link to the Past and The Ocarina of Time, because it has this third-person perspective, but an obviously 3D-rendered world, and it puts a lot of value on puzzle-solving, um, Here's a stick, go find your sword. Once you have a sword, go find a shield. Now that you've stopped dying so darn much, here's a world of puzzles and discovery and exploration. And it is absolutely wonderful. And sometimes it's absolutely maddening. But it's one of those things that I haven't had an experience with a game where I wanted to solve a puzzle or I wanted to explore because I felt like everything was already mapped out for me. Like, I I felt like all the spoilers were already spoiled walking into, into some of the discovery with the most recent Zelda games that I've played. Or it felt too familiar that I kind of know, even though I'm exploring, there's some training wheels on and I feel like I, feel like I know what's going to happen. And this just hit all the right Zelda notes until I slammed into a wall with with the final boss. And then I felt very foolish after two weeks. I'm like, I've been tackling this last boss in entirely the wrong way. Instead of puzzle solving, I'm not going to finish that sentence because they're spoilers. So, you know. <laughs> um, it's available on, on Steam. It's available on the Nintendo Switch. And I believe... Uh, the you know the other two major consoles as well the xbox and and ps whatever whatever the ps's are on they're on five now four 16 and a half 37 it doesn't matter <laughs> all of these consoles will be obsolete by the time this episode comes out and they'll all have new ones anyway because hey, that's hey, the way hey. that, that's is that a no dig on my editing no it's a dig <laughs> on the way that consumerism works and how fast our technology goes obsolete I mean, you're half right if it was a dig on me, but still. Hey, I would never <laughs> I would never do that to you. I know. But I I watched a trailer for this game and uh, some of the gameplay, and I'm, Joy, if you're listening to this episode right now, I apologize, but you might be getting this in your stocking for Christmas because this is right up her alley. Heck, I tried <laughs> to buy it for Joy, except I found out that you can't send gifts through the Nintendo, the Nintendo store. I'm like... Why really? can't you do that? Yeah, I See, know. That oh. really surprises me as well, because as much as Nintendo likes money, you'd think that <laughs> a system would be in place that if you've played a game, or even if you haven't played a game, but you can befriend someone and buy them a game. I totally would have done it. Yeah, I'm on my third playthrough right now, which says something. The cool thing is, you know how when you complete in Zelda, at least back in the 80s version, you complete the main quest and you're like, congratulations, you're set back to zero again. This game <laughs> doesn't do that. It says, now you get to begin a new quest. You get to keep all of your stats and most of your equipment. And 
you can keep looping the game and keep buying more power-ups. So I'm interested to see how deep does that rabbit hole go because it's not stopped being fun yet. Oh, I remember seeing screenshots of this one at some point. Yeah, I played it at PAX and I was like, oh, this is great. Is it on the Switch? <laughs> it's on Steam. I'm like, oh, then I'll get to that. Then it came out on Switch and I got to that. <laughs> and also all of the characters are foxes. So that's just darling. And it, it, it makes it. <laughs> so that's my geek out. Well, then I suppose that takes us into our main topic. Ooh, what's that? <laughs> well, this is a third in our whatever the heck we want film club. And I believe it was your choice. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Mike, why don't you introduce us to Dark City? Okay, yeah. Uh, Dark City is a... Ew, what kind of film is this? Um <laughs> sci-fi noir um genre bendy yeah it's all over the place um but i went into this movie thinking it was one style of movie and boy did it switch things up fairly quickly what style did you think it was <laughs> i was expecting noir detective uh, -huh. uh yeah. maybe a little supernatural yeah and boy did it get thrown off the rails yeah yeah this film presents itself as an existential film with a romantic ending. At least that's how uh, the director, Proyas, defines it or envisions it. This is a film that competes with, like, it competes with your name as my number one top pick for a film. And I think it depends on which one I have seen most recently, which one is my favorite film. Uh, do you prefer the, there's the a director's cut of this one. Do you like the theatrical version or the director's cut better? I haven't seen the theatrical version in well over a decade, which would probably say something. And it's because the, the theatrical film starts with a spoiler. And since if you haven't seen this film, it's been out for decades. So what is it? 1998? 99, 98. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it now, go out and watch it or I'm just going to spoil it for you. And you probably either don't care or have already seen it. Otherwise you might not have clicked play on this episode. So here it is. <laughs> uh, the world that's presented. Wait, before is... we get into that, I do, oh. I do want to point out, I watched the theatrical version on Amazon. I saw there are two different versions, but they didn't say what they were. So in the interest of time, I just picked one and started it. And it was the theatrical version, which had the voiceover at the beginning. And I was disappointed by it. Because yeah. voiceovers, especially at the beginning, can be so hit and miss. Like the one at the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring, complete hit. Oh, yeah. Uh, this one was a miss for me. Like you said, it was a spoiler. And I would rather have not known that spoiler because that diminished the suspense and the fear I should have felt at later scenes. And also mm -hmm. the confusion and the wonder, like, how are they doing this? What is going on? And I didn't have that because I already knew. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't seen this film and you can only get access to the theatrical, turn the volume down until the camera pushes in through that, that first window, because otherwise you're just going to ruin the film. But I interrupted. Please continue with what you're telling us about the movie. That is exactly what I was going to say of why I wanted to have, why, why I prefer the, the director's cut is because this is supposed to be an existential film that it's supposed to be filled with angst. It's supposed to be filled with this. Well, who, what is going on in this absurd reality around me? Who am I in relationship to this absurd reality? 
And without that sense of discovery, it really diminishes the film. And so, so it sounds like there was probably the same kind of studio meddling as we had in Blade Runner with a unnecessary and a voiceover that weakened the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. That is exactly what happened. The director did not want the voiceover. The studio said they didn't want the audience to be confused. And the director is like screaming. <laughs> and cr- that is the part of the point there. This is an existential film. The character is confused. The audience should feel this along with the character. And really, I mean, that's just life. You're just kind of bumbling along confused. <laughs> yeah. That's why I love this film. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's it's got such a wonderfully dark aesthetic without it being horror. Uh, it it looks creepy. It looks eerie. It walks the line with horror. Like I think it definitely toes that line, especially when you have the characters of I want to call them the gentlemen because they so remind me <laughs> of the antagonists from the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The strangers. Um, the strange, yeah, the strangers. They float. They're pale skinned, bald headed. Thankfully, they, they don't have too much. Yeah, yeah, they don't smile that much. But yeah, I saw that, and they definitely gave me those vibes. And yeah, I felt like it towed the line of horror, especially when they pull out the knives. But thankfully, it never stepped over it. Yeah, I actually passed on this film in the in when it was out in theaters because I thought it was horror, and that's just not particularly my genre. But one of the things that I think is kind of a darling thing, like you have this, like, okay, this is creepy, this is eerie, we've got knives, and the child stranger, it was played by by fraternal twins, and the young lady of the of the two was so excited to get into costume every day. She loved the costume. <laughs> That's sweet in a creepy and worrying way. Oh, speaking of creepy and worrying and also darling, apparently the two fraternal twins loved, and I kid you not, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so uh, the guy who played, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I was I was thinking the first time I watched it, it's like, oh man, that poor child has probably just been traumatized by this movie and they're never going to be the same, but never mind. No, because <laughs> Mr. Hand also played riffraff in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so there was much mirth made in doing recreations from the Rocky Horror Picture Show on set in between shoots for their amusement. (laughs) I'm just picturing one of the scenes where all of the the strangers are in their hall. There's the giant head above them, and they're all doing the time warp. Yeah, like, wow, this episode took a real strange jump to the left. (laughs) So let's talk about film craft. Yes. Yes. I think the first thing that jumps out for me is the story, because I'm fascinated that we're choosing to tell, I mean, as Proyas described it as, as an existential story with a hopeful ending. Um, and again, spoilers, we have a protagonist who's trying to make sense of the world, trying to figure out who he is. Uh, but the reality of that world doesn't make sense. It's, it's all a construct. And there isn't, there isn't a real satisfying answer for any of his who am I questions. And it's because like all of the stuff is just made up. Uh, and uh, it really is in the end about who he chooses to become. 
the world is pointless, the world is absurd, the world is cruelly indifferent to the plight of human beings. And ultimately, it is he who decides what the world is going to be and makes it what it is when he lives life to the fullest. And I don't know a story quite like that. I think it particularly interesting that this was released just 13 months before The Matrix, which has a lot of similarities in terms of it's asking these existential questions and it's talking about constructed reality. Part of this is probably due to the fact this was the very late 90s and people were watching that big 2000 coming up in the near future and having these questions. But it is peculiar how similar the two movies are in terms of theme and appearance. In execution, this movie really had me questioning, okay, is there another Wachowski brother that we just don't know about <laughs> who got a hold of his brother's transcripts and just decided to shoot really fast? Because... <laughs> There are so many similarities, it's too much to be coincidence, in my opinion. There is a, a connection between the two. Um, Andrew Mason, who was uh, a visual effects supervisor, and I think he was in charge of the, the miniature shoots. Mason is also an executive producer on the Matrix trilogy. Okay. So there may have been some information flowing one direction or the other. With respect to Mike, because I'm not saying that this is a bad movie, because actually I think it is a good movie, but comparing this to The Matrix, it's like when your classmate asks to copy your homework, but then gets a better grade than you. <laughs> I, I don't know how to feel about you saying things about my favorite movie like that. I'm just, no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> no, I'm... I do know one thing that is not a coincidental similarity, and that is the rooftop chase scene. Yes. They're the same rooftop between movies. They use the set in one. Yes. <laughs> they are exactly I mean, the same set. They they sold it to the Matrix when they were done filming this film. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> wow. There were a couple of moments, like when one of the strangers finally meets... Mr. And he goes, Mr. Murdoch. Uh, he, Mr. Anderson. Mr. He could have just said Mr. Anderson. Like, like literally the same way. Yep. And at the end, when Murdoch has his quote unquote power, I could almost hear going, what's happening? And in Morpheus's voice, I went, he's starting to believe. <laughs> Though one thing that I do like in this film is in The Matrix, there very much was a, well, there is the one. Like, the one is coming. In this film, there is no the one. Like, there's there's no prophecy. There's no anticipation. It just is. Um, Murdoch wasn't foreseen to come. He's more or less an accident. And I think that, and for some reason for me, the fact that there isn't... Um, that there isn't one we are anticipating resonates differently, but I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I like my messiahs in real life and not as much on film. I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, you you guys are not the first ones to mention the similarities <laughs> to The Matrix. I think that the internet is full of that, and it's there. Oh, yes. It's yeah. there. The time similarity happening practically on top of each other is going to draw those... Uh comparisons yeah. for some reason i thought that because of the look and the effects dark city came out in like the early 90s 
like I was thinking like 92, 93 for some reason. Then when I found out it came out in 98 and the Matrix came out in 99, I'm like, really? Yeah, well, that's the difference between a uh, Warner Brothers picture and an indie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's there's also some things about the aesthetic of this film that since the Matrix came out in 99 and the simulation was set in 1999 with very much the technology of 1999 with occasional injections of two. 1750 whatever it is this movie is drawing a lot from the past and is drawing from different eras like you'll you'll have a 1960s car right next to a 1940s car right next to a 1950s microphone and it's it's all just kind of in a jumbled past and so it makes the film not look like it's from the era that it's from despite the Mm -hmm all of the the storytelling and special effects elements and uh, as Brian and I were talking before the mics all of the green tint that they were putting on everything <laughs> <laughs> is very much from that era yeah just because i was curious especially with what you pointed out Brian about the the different studios dark city had an estimated budget of about 27 million and the matrix had a budget of over 63 million so most of which was yeah. Keanu Reeves. But. <laughs> One other thing that makes the difference is this movie really is looking backward because it's really drawing on film noir and German expressionism. Mm-hmm. A couple of analyses I read mentioned that fusion of them particularly. I, I'd, of course, seen the film noir. I'm very familiar with that. I don't know as much about German expressionism. I mean, I've seen Metropolis and um, Nosferatu. I wish I'd done my reading a little bit earlier. I'd have gone and watched um, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari um, just to get more of that awareness in my head. But, you know, these are, are film genres from the 20s and 20s through the 40s. And so when you're evoking that visually, that's also going to make it look older because you're using those older techniques in terms of uh, your set building and your, your camera angles. Another one of the things that I thought was was really interesting in this film uh, is that it gave us more questions than it did answers. Uh, there were a lot of questions about, well, what is what is the soul? What is the nature of what it means to be human? And especially when we have that last bit of dialogue after the climax where the protagonist, uh, John Murdoch, is talking to, to Mr. Hand. And Mr. Hand is expressing that he he wanted to feel like what it felt like to be human. And John basically says, you went looking in the wrong place. It's not here. And, you know, we would expect in a Hollywood film for a feel-good answer, like he points at his head, he says, it's not here. We would expect that the next reaction to be is, it's here, and points to his chest, which is really just kind of meaningless drivel. (laughs) In the version in my head, uh, and I told this to Joe, I'm like, he doesn't point to his heart. He points to his stomach and said, it's here, which if you had just fed these people some better food in the automat than banana, green jello, apple, potato, you might have gotten somewhere. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's that's an interesting thing is because there is this sentimental idea. You point at your you point at your chest and say, you know, it's in here. Now, whatever the it is, 
Um, there is no anatomical pointing place for for <laughs> the soul or the seat of humanity. Like, and I I would I would use this at the I would use this film at the end of my intro to philosophy classes because it has so many different touch points, but doesn't ever land on an answer with any one of them that it allowed so much of allowed us to hearken back to so many different points in the semester. So in that class, I would, I would kind of talk about, well, it's not here. It's, and then I'd point at my elbow and say, it's here or point <laughs> at the back of my leg, or maybe it's, it's here. Points up his nose. Maybe here. Like I was never so daring to point at my butt and say, is it here? <laughs> like It's like, what does it mean to be human? Why is it, why is it in an anatomical structure? And instead, this film just leaves it out. It's not in here. Turn and, and leave. Now, I was kind of okay that it leaves the viewers with unanswered questions. Because then it's up to us to create our own theories about the outcome. Right. And how, how pretentious would it be of a filmmaker to tell you what it means to be human? Or where the seat of our humanity actually lies. Like, at best, he would be able to deliver a 30-second, long-winded, uninterrupted um, expose on what it means to be human. And in the end, you're telling me that you think you can do in 30 seconds to two minutes of screen time what Western philosophy has been struggling with for for eons. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the fact that it echoes... It has echoes in philosophy, but doesn't think too highly of itself to give us the answers. On some uh, more technical topics, the lighting is fantastic. Going back to the the noir thing, um, Proyas was really, really aware of the lights. Dariusz Wolski? I'm sure I mispronounced that. It's Polish. It's Wolinski. The DP. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, Volsky was the uh, the director of photography, um, and I had him up on something else, what else he had done, but now I seem to have misplaced it. Um, I think he was also on The Crow, um, which was... Actually, I think I just stole James's Thunder because I see him typing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I was just going to bring up the fact that Alex Proya is still really feeling those dark, shadowy, gothic vibes um, <laughs> since he directed The Crow just four years prior. Yeah, uh, and he brought a lot of the crew forward uh, from that, I think. Um, probably how he managed to keep his budget down. You already know you like working for me, so you'll work for scale, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can reuse the same sets. Wonderful. <laughs> Don't even need to repaint them. <sighs> Well, it's funny because he said that he got the idea for this film after being on on set at The Crow and as they're moving the city scapes back and forth. Like, huh, <laughs> moving city that changes every day. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not making yeah, this up. That it is, is the kind point. of Hollywood in a microcosm, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, the lighting in this is something that I really loved just because it's, I said natural lighting as in, you know, they didn't bring in a lot of external lights. It's if 
if there are fluorescent lights in the shot, what's lighting the shot is the fluorescent light. If there is a light on the street, that street light is what's lighting this shot. And they use that so well uh, to create not only, as you said, these deep shadows, but also some really great contrast. Um, like, oh, I wonder where John picked up May. Uh, he said something about an automat. Ah, look, there's a bright red sign that says food. <laughs> like, oh, look, there is the hotel labeled hotel, which it sounds really kind of stupid and cheesy, but it's also a delightful thing because the strangers are making these things. They don't really understand humanity. And so like, well, yeah, right. the, the hotel doesn't have a name. It's just hotel. Yes. It's like you left your wallet at the automat. And he doesn't have to ask which automat because there's only one. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it's funny because all of these people accept that reality. Because, yeah, it's the automat. You know, it's the hotel. Um, and it, I think that's I think that's clever and it's fantastic. I'd also like to make a point about the sparing use of color in this movie. Now, we do see it from time to time, but it's very muted, uh, Mm. very dark colors. They tend to blend in one to the next. I mean, for much of the movie, the most well-lit place we see is the automat. And just because it's well-lit does not mean that it is a warm, inviting place. Actually, it looks like the most depressing diner that I've ever seen in my life. So you've um, described an automat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like a Denny's, but not as warm and inviting. But when we do get visions or moments of vibrant color, like his memories of the beach mm. and even the aquarium that his quote unquote uncle owns, the bright blue of the fish tanks and the fish themselves, it was, it was quite jarring, actually. Yeah, it wasn't colorless because everything was desaturated, as happened in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just because the set design was deliberately minimalistic and dark. Exactly. And so when we finally do get that last scene with Michael, you know, uh, going through the door and there's the sky, the beach and the ocean you are experiencing exactly what he's feeling, a, a visual sensory overload. I could only imagine. Well, I was experiencing a very bad composite myself. But... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine what that was like in the theater, sitting in a dark film for so long, and then all of a sudden have the sun in your eyes. I, I wonder if it felt like John Murdoch having a break. It feels like coming outside after watching a matinee. Yeah. You open the doors, boom, there's the sun. Eh, not in Boston. The sun sets in the afternoon. It, 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 it's it's full on dark by one thirty. No, it's not. It's 4.30. It's full on dark, but still. That's too early. It is too early. I know I'm pulling out a lot of filmmaking elements here, but also just want to touch on the music for a moment because it is so right for this film. It's creepy. It's dark it's twisted without pushing it into horror it just feels i don't know just the right kind of tension in kind of a mad world and i think it's fantastic Mm -hmm. and it's also another similarity with the matrix i noticed that those bright trumpets over the the low brass and the strings crashing cymbals like wow this sounds an awful lot like the matrix as a matter of fact i 
thought that so much that I looked up to make sure they weren't the same uh, composer. They're not, but uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the music quite a lot too. I had a bitter thought about the music and not in a criticizing way, but and this is going to make Brian laugh. I thought this music is very appropriate for the scenes. It's, it's very evocative. It's very memorable. Why is the music for this movie overall better than the music overall that I've experienced in the rings of power? <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah. I really want to see Galadriel come out and sing um, the sway with me. That's that would. <laughs> You know, if it was the Kate Blanchett version of Galadriel, I'm down for that. <laughs> it couldn't hurt. All right, Brian, you've got some notes on the visual effects and miniatures. I do. Uh, the first thing out of the gate is that one of the first things that you see is the the miniatures of the the buildings, and they really are actual miniatures. Um, they weren't the bigotures that you had in the other movies we watched recently. Um, and it really shows in the level of detail they were able to reproduce that these things look small. Now, granted, this was released the same year as Godzilla, which we'd already mentioned was using all of the existing model buildings. And Stetson was already working on the fifth element, so he wasn't available. So probably is just a matter of there's nobody in town that we can get to do this well. So we're going to make do with what we have. I did notice that uh, I believe the main visual effects supervisor on this was Mara Bryan, which having a woman as VFX soup on a movie in this era is pretty that's actually, pretty cool. that's pretty cool. That's still doesn't happen very often. Now she did a really good job supervising this because Looking at her IMDb, she was not experienced. This was, I think, her first supervisor role. And just a couple years previously, she was production coordinator. So this was stepping into into some a job that she probably has had never done before and only vaguely understood. You should have pulled your Hollywood strings to get her on the show for this one. <laughs> yeah, all of my... yeah. Hollywood strings as yeah or string yeah (laughs) okay let's just stick to what we're good at (laughs) right what is that now uh (laughs) yeah let's not look at that too closely yeah (laughs) this isn't a place for introspection (laughs) (laughs) we'll save that for the zombie apocalypse plan of the week (laughs) being the late 90s uh there was cg uh, it was not very advanced in terms of CG, but uh, for the time, it's pretty decent and pretty well integrated. Yeah, they used it sparingly enough that it was memorable and uh, it was a keynote of a scene instead of taking it over. Yeah, like the, the creature effects um, at this point in time, creature effects are really, really hard, but these sell OK because... Uh, the creatures are are glowy; they're non corporeal, and so you don't expect them to to have to look like they're being lit by the same environment. So the the combination of you know practical effects, and particularly in the buildings, um, because some of the buildings are being morphed and they're they're obviously CG, but others are just we're moving the camera over a miniature, 
And having those things work together works to make the city transformations more believable too. I want to also touch back on what we said earlier about the spoiler at the beginning. Had I not known that there were aliens in this movie and that they were the strangers, that scene where there's the fight between Murdoch and the strangers on the scaffolding, you know, we see one of the the strangers, he gets injured, the back of his head is shown and it's just flailing, glowing tentacles and something crawls out of the head. That would have been jarring and and shocking to see, like, what is going on? What is first? These guys were floating and now there's an alien coming out of his head. That would have been a great reveal, but Mm -hmm. it was spoiled because of the monologue. Yeah. One of the things that's that's interesting, you said that the effects, you know, weren't all that standing. I actually think both of you were like, they don't take over a scene. They're kind of muted. The director's cut is actually more muted in the visual effects than the theatrical release. Proyas was never terribly satisfied with how obvious the the theatrical CG effects were. So he went back and redid them and made them just a little a little less so. So you can tell that they're there, but definitely they don't they don't punch. They just kind of ripple. There's a uh a rule of thumb that we use when we're, we're doing an effect that we, we get it dialed in perfectly. And then almost always this looks great. I'm going to turn it down 10%. Interesting. Cause when you look at it the next day, it'll be fine. But if, uh, if you don't do that last 10%, you're going to look at it the next day and say, Oh, that's so obvious. Interesting. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there was, there are all those mental force effects, which I understand those were also improved for the director's cut, but they still look a little after effectsy to me. Like they're just they're just overlaid on top of the rest of the image. They don't look integrated with it. Maybe it's because uh, I was watching this on like a 4K TV. I did not like the look of those mental force effects. I, I thought they actually looked kind of cheesy. And I think that some scenes would have been better served if we had seen the character of Murdoch like look at something hard for a moment. And then something just appear or something just like a door appear or something happened. I think that the scenes would have been better served had the effect just not been there at all. Actually, in the door appearing scene, I don't think that it it was in the director's cut that he did look and the door just appeared like he took that out. So that may have been another one of those cases where he just really toned things down. So it's Um, like for this scene, I'm not going to take away 10 percent. I'm going to take out 100 percent. (laughs) it's funny that you have a criticism of a film james and the director's like yes i completely agree with you (laughs) (laughs) if only all directors would listen to you right well last jedi would have been a bit better they have my number (laughs) (laughs) kathleen kennedy if you're hearing this now james is uh, is open to direct the next star wars film nothing could go wrong you can reach me at james at geekatarms.com if you have a lawsuit to file against me you can send that to brian at geekatarms.com <laughs> because his mailbox is full and it'll just bounce <laughs> exactly <laughs> one final note i want to make on visual effects and miniatures is that uh so far we are three for three in this film club on movies that have lingering shots of buildings and skylines yeah, see, we thought there wasn't a theme. Little did we know. It was Little cityscapes. Did we... Yeah. 
I should have just had Batman for my last pick. If we had a fourth movie, then it would have been Batman. Just a combination of all of the skyline and city shots from all the three prior movies are all combined together in that one. (laughs) All right. We should do that for a film club. We take a specific type of of trope or uh, effect shot, and that's just what we focus on for the entire film club. I'm trying to imagine what that would look like. In our first movie, in our Wilhelm Scream film club. <laughs> there you have it. Definitely Star Wars. Anyway. This is the Vasquez Rocks film club. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be starting with the exploration of Kirk versus the Gorn. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, shall we uh, start talking about some of these unique characters unique they're copied and pasted from each other (laughs) i know that was just a little sarcasm (laughs) okay uh dr schreiber from the moment he opens his mouth i was i was never really persuaded uh sutherland's delivery it's stilted it just doesn't really work for me Mm -hmm. he should have dialed it back another 10 percent. i liked some of the decisions that they made for his character at first, we thought the reason he was hobbling about everywhere is probably because of the torture that these strangers have inflicted mm-hmm. upon him, but because of also the time period of which this movie seems to be set. My first thought was, he's got polio. Polio? Yeah. yeah and that made a lot of sense to me that why we, he was we, – we have so many scenes with him in a pool because this is where he would hang out when he could because this would be one of the few times that he could move around without being in pain. Interesting. That is an interesting read. I might be giving it a little too much credit, I admit, though. Still, I mean, I I still think that it fits for the aesthetic and for the time period, question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of like this idea that we do have the the antagonist's assistant who is really just kind of a coward. I mean, he he's doing his job because, well, he doesn't feel that he has any other choice. And... He isn't, you know, he really doesn't have a will or determination of his own, except for, you know, in the end, I think that his, that the Schreiber's Gambit, which is now a Hollywood Institute where you, I mean, it's a staple (laughs) that if you are supposed to be injecting one syringes worth of memories into somebody and switch it out with another syringes worth of memories, that is in Hollywood now known as the Schreiber's Gambit. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's on that Overlord list now, too, you know. Yeah. Always a... check the syringes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that it's interesting that we do have this character that is, that's a coward who's helpful, but only when he sees that there is no more immediate danger than the person that he's supposed to be helping. You know, he had, he is an opportunist. He had me guessing up until the very end, whose side is he actually on? I don't, I, do you know what? It, I think that depends on who's asking. Yeah. And I think the answer is going to be the same. He's on his I'm side. On your side. <laughs> I assumed that the answer was, you know, whose side are you on? Please don't hurt me. <laughs> not in the face, not in the face. Right. <laughs> but he's also, I mean, he's also for a storytelling purpose because of that character, uh, because of that characteristic, he is a useful means of of conveying information to not only the protagonist, but also to the audience. 
mm-hmm. um, because he knows what's going on. He doesn't have any ultimate answers, but he at least knows, so he can at least be a conduit for in the moment disclosing as much as much as he can in that moment. So, and I think it's consistent, particularly as teasing out information is kind of kind of the storytelling mechanic of this film, and it I think it, his character works in that regard. So, shall we move on to Emma slash Anna? I think we should. Mm-hmm. What's the actress's name, Mike? Are you just setting me up for failure one more yes, time? Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> it is Jennifer Connelly, not Yay. as I have Are you sure? accidentally said in previous episodes, Sarah Connelly, because the film <laughs> that we have not talked about is The Labyrinth, which she was also in. We, we have a thing with Jennifer Connelly on the show, don't we? Yeah, we seem to do. Sorry, when you said Sarah Connerly, my first thought was a man in dark glasses. Have you seen John Murdoch? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was an interesting character to me because having identified early on, this is a noir film. There are two stock female characters in noir. Uh, the Angun Yu, I think on, I pronounced that right. Ingenue. Ingenue. And uh, the film, the film, the femme fatale. Um, And her introduction makes her look like the latter. But then as soon as we get any conversation with her, it's like, oh, well, no, she's she's not. And uh, the director just uses her brilliantly to take advantage of the savvy viewer because he's like, oh, hey, I'm watching a noir film. I see the female character. I identify her as a stock character. I know what's going on. And then suddenly he spins it around and keeps us off balance. Mm hmm. That scene with her singing in the bar is powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She sings Sway With Me so beautifully. I think it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Yeah, I bought the soundtrack because of that scene. <laughs> it really kind of surprised me, though, that the strangers, considering how dark and drab and simple they keep the rest of this world, that there is a bar with a band and a singer in it. That is interesting. Well, they may not even understand the difference between someone singing in a bar and someone putting pies in a box at the automat. They're both incomprehensible actions to them. Fair. That's pure speculation. Maybe they're just fans of Jennifer Connelly. I mean, I mean who uh, isn't, who honestly? Isn't. <laughs> you know, you say that, but one thing that I had sometimes been disappointed with is her performance seems to be relatively muted. I mean, other than that very striking scene in the club, she doesn't really have a lot of range in her emotions in this film. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought, you know, what happened to her? Is this direction? Is this, you know, what's going on? It turns out that it is in some ways direction because what's happening in this film is the strangers have set things up to go on a certain course. Like, we're going to set up John Murdoch to to meet up with May, and then we've implanted him with murderer's memories, and therefore, probably impulses, let's study to see if he murders May. He should murder May. He's, gonna, he's definitely going to murder May. Um, and so this Emma character that they had invented is there to, to have this divorce conflict. You know, she betrayed her husband. And he's angry at her and he's run away and he's punishing her. And so when they 
butt heads. It's like, why did you do this? Are you are you punishing me? And he's like, okay, who are you? Are you supposed to be my wife? I found these keys they're for this door. And suddenly the script is off. When he goes and meets May, the whole thing goes off the stranger's script. And so she starts, May acts differently. And so he encounters Emma. And so Emma suddenly doesn't have a script. And she's just lost when this whole narrative has gone off track. And so I think that's kind of part of what's going on in the portrayal is that she's searching for who she is in relation to to this character who isn't who her husband isn't who her husband was supposed to be. I think there's something in that we get some hints about what is happening to these people when the script gets broken. Because uh, when Murdoch is in the cab, he's talking to this cabbie who's got a very distinctive stylized delivery and accent. And as soon as he says, well, then how do I get to shell beach? Uh, the cabbie's accent disappears. I had missed that. So had I. And uh, May, um, the the prostitute, you know, when she loses the the opportunity, well, loses the opportunity to get murdered, but she didn't know that. Um, but her her paycheck walks out the door. She doesn't react in the the vulgar way that you would expect a lady of the night to do. She says, "Oh shoot!" <laughs> and there's she something said, so tender and sweet in that like this is really what's underneath may's script and what's underneath may's imprint is really this sweet innocent person Mm -hmm. i had been complaining in my own head that they missed an opportunity to really tell us if the memories make the person and it's like oh they missed the opportunity to really explore that but i don't think that they did that uh proyas did i think he he made that point in a much more subtle manner than I had appreciated at first. Yeah. So sounds like we really need to get to the bottom of what is going on. So the person who's going to do that is obviously the inspector, uh, Bumstead. Played excellently, I might add, by William Hurt. Indeed. He has my favorite line in the movie. No one ever listens to me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that because you would expect him to just be outraged at Anna. You know, that you're interfering with an investigation. But no, he doesn't. It's just... It's just this resigned sigh. (laughs) No one ever listens to me. He's got a lot of great lines. Um, I've mirrored that exact same feeling as a parent. (laughs) I have spoken an echo of this film in that moment. (laughs) Um, But he has, he has these, he has these great lines. Like when he's reviewing Bumstead's notes, uh, large, massive air quotes around notes about the case, (laughs) he he was supposed to just walk through just a couple of different deliveries of a couple of different lines to see which one they would like, but they all got used in the film because they were all so good. They couldn't decide like the area where he says, I feel like I'm being punished for someone else's sins, (laughs) which is also a great line. (laughs) One thing that I, I like is that the strangers gave him this inquisitive, relentless drive 
And it's it's interesting because that's one of the things that winds up helping him believe Murdoch. Like he wants to solve this puzzle, but every time he puts the puzzle pieces together, as he says, none of it makes any sense. And it's because it doesn't. The world doesn't make sense. Like you were supposed to be set on a script. Like here's here's your guy, here's your murderer. Once you catch the murderer, you can connect all the dots. But the murderer's going off script. And so now he's left chasing this guy who's who's kind of unraveling this mystery bits and pieces at a time. And so the detective is seeing the bits and pieces that are unraveling. There's no coherent picture. It's all a hodgepodge. And uh, it's it's kind of fitting and also kind of sad that it's only through Bumstead's eyes that we see the full reality that John is is in. It's in his dying moment when he just starts sailing through space that he sees the whole awful terrible truth that the reason why there's no way out is because it's just one big spiral it's all one big circle floating in space Mm -hmm. which is not a scene i was expecting in this movie (laughs) (laughs) well why wouldn't you expect like a 1930s 40s 50s noir to be somewhere in the interstellar void i mean why not i mean when when he saw the stars and when the camera pans back and you just see that is a city floating in space my first reaction was about poor mr murdoch and thinking wow you are screwed (laughs) well that's what i think makes walensky's character so brilliant I love this character because he's almost John Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying earlier, there is no one. There are people who have been affected by this world, and any one of them could have become John Murdoch. Yeah. The only thing that's different is he has the ability to tune, um, which, listeners, if you have not seen this film, tune is the ability to psychically use the psychic tools that are underneath they don't really explain it like john can do it the 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 strangers can do it the antagonists can the protagonist can do it the antagonist can do it they can make things or they can psychically change things um so but yeah walensky is almost what john murdoch is he's been all around the city and he sees that it's just a cruel facade of an existence he embodies the existential angst and the fact that none of this is quote unquote real and that there is no escape. Um, to others, his angst looks like madness. I mean, and, and it is madness. He's seen the horrible truth that despite all his rage, he is still just a rat in a cage. <laughs> yeah, I did um, that. Yeah, you did that. I did it. <laughs> Uh, they missed out putting that song on the soundtrack. I'd do it again <laughs> if I had the chance. This guy had this uh, very appropriate 1940s acting style. You know, if you were watching a movie from that era oh. and you'd, you'd seen this guy acting, that's exactly, uh, you know, very Grapes of Wrath kind of over the top. 
but I think it worked for him both because he is mad and uh, the size of his role. If he'd been any more of him and it would have been cartoonish, mm. like Kiefer, it didn't work for me just because he was in through the whole movie. Um, but Walensky, because he's only in what three scenes really. Yeah. Uh, he had limited opportunity to, to really go over the top. He took advantage of it for sure. Um, but it worked for me better than better than Sutherland's did. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is really kind of cool is that, yeah, he's crazy, but everything he says is true. Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's insane in the sense that a character in uh, the Lovecraft mythos is insane. He's seen the truth, and it drove him mad. Oof! There's some comparisons to make. <laughs> Well, you know, we've got aliens and tentacles. Speaking of aliens and tentacles, do we have mm-hmm. things to say about the strangers? I thought that they were for a very understated movie as far as the look, the feel. Of, at first, these are very understated villains. They're not over the top. They are just pale men and a child, creepiest <laughs> of them all, dressed in black, but very slender. I made the comparison earlier to to the gentleman in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, Hush, which, by the way, that episode came out in 1999. So I'm wondering if, you know, Joss Whedon hadn't had a little inspiration. <laughs> but the characters from Hush, the, uh, the gentleman, once again, dark, well-dressed, very pale, float above the ground, just like a few inches above the ground. And so watching them just float down the street, not talking, but just smiling maniacally at each other while making slow, intricate gestures with their hands. Oh, my gosh. It still sends shivers down my spine. (laughs) And so in that same vein, we get the strangers. They're soft-spoken, unblinking, pale-faced, very mysterious. What do they want and they seem to have this strange power to make anyone go to sleep instantly, affect the world around them effortlessly, create doors or erase doors, make staircases three stories taller than they should be. That was a great shot. That was a great shot. Mm-hmm. And once again, I'm going to go back to that narration at the beginning. They would have been much more enigmatic had we not had that, if it hadn't been spoiled for us. So I really am wishing that I had seen the director's cut instead only, of the theatrical. Yeah, if only someone had put that in the group chat to definitely do the director's <laughs> cut. James is going to hit me. He's going to drive to New England <laughs> and hit me very hard. <laughs> I'm going to record it for the next episode. <laughs> this, is, this is day two of the murder diary. I'm driving over to Mike's place. I got me a pickaxe, a shovel, a Little League baseball bat, a pair of brass knuckles, and a rusty knife. Don't know which I'm going to use, but i got plenty of time to think it over. <laughs> Haven't slept in two days? Might torture Mike. Might get ice cream. Could go either way right now. <laughs> and if any of you listeners are thinking, I can't believe James is going to do this with a horrible man, don't worry. I got Kaj's permission. <laughs> it's like... 
<laughs> I'm just imagining like encouragement even. <laughs> James, I got you ice cream standing over my body. Here's your scoop and just throws it on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anyone can solve the mystery of what happened to Mike, I'm sure that would be John Murdoch. <sighs> oh no wait before we get to him though we need to uh discuss if there's one but back to the strangers you know away yeah, had... from, away from the inter-podcast homicide what i'm sorry brian what were you gonna say i was gonna say there's something in the premise of this movie that kind of makes me want to flip the script on them the the premise is we've got this dying species and they're performing an experiment they're desperately trying to solve their own existential problem. How do we save our, our, our people from extinction? And so they're performing this experiment on what they view as inferior beings. It's, is it really any worse truly than what we do with our, our laboratory animals? I mean, we've got the, the rat in Schreiber's lab and sure it's a metaphor for Murdoch's existence, but it's also kind of an uncomfortable mirror of, of what we do. Um, I don't know if that's deliberate or not, but uh, we view them as, you know, pretty clearly one dimensional villains, but I'm sure that they don't see themselves that way, except for Mr. Sleep, because who puts down the knives in order to bite somebody's hand? Come on. Children, <laughs> children, definitely <laughs> yes. children. Anyway, I just thought wanted to, to throw that out there. No, that is interesting. And we do have the specific example of the from the strangers of Mr. Hand. Mr. Hand is altogether a different breed. I mean, he mm -hmm. he wants to experience what it's like to be human, and so he volunteers to get the imprint that was that was intended for John. And so he's going to try to follow John's memories as John is following clues to who he is, hoping that these two things will intersect. I mean, that's at least the stated purpose, but really he wants to experience what it's like to be human. And he doesn't. I think it's fascinating that when he receives the imprint, and if you haven't watched the movie, it's, it's stated that anytime a stranger has received a human imprint, it's always killed them in the end at some point. And when he receives the imprint, they have him strapped down to this circular device. And really it is, it's supposed to be symbolic of Da Vinci's Vitruvian man. And so his becoming human moment is this sick, twisted parody of this drawing of human proportion. I had not picked up on that one. Mm. What I think is really interesting is that we see the Vitruvian man one more time, and that's when John is imprinted with the with the memories of how to use the stranger's devices and how to tune with a lifetime's worth of experience. And what he does is he shatters those confines. Like there he is, like the the Vitruvian man but his chains break away and those confines melt as he just steps away from them. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was really powerful symbolic imagery. So since we're talking about John Murdoch, do we, do we want to mm -hmm. hit anything more with Mr. Hand or do we want to talk about John Murdoch? Uh, just the observation that I felt like that when he was imprinted 
with what John's memories and experiences were supposed to be. What preceded was really the beginning of the end for the strangers. Hmm. Because I think it was a, a major risky move for everybody because yeah. uh, Schreiber is literally creating a monster. He's, mm-hmm. he's Dr. Frankenstein in this moment. And the consequences of making a, I mean, he's making a serial killer out of somebody who already has supernatural powers. Yeah. That's risky. <laughs> and also the fact that Mr. Hand, which is he more interested in? Catching Murdoch or carrying out Murdoch's personality? Mm-hmm. Because we see that when they're alone with May, and they're questioning her. He said, she still has a part to play. Leave her with me. Yeah, he takes some, like, clearly the strangers are happy thinking of, of humans as subjects or lab rats, but he certainly takes some delight in mm-hmm. what was fortunately off screen. Yeah. But in my thinking was that he is costing them time, energy, because he's no longer pursuing the stranger's mission. Like I said, he's no longer pursuing their mission. He's off the rails. He's gone he's... off the reservation. Yeah. And they're aware of that. They're uncomfortable with what he's becoming. Like he, they even say, this is irrational. I was like, well, impulses often are. Like, yeah, I think he was more interested in feeling human than he was in fulfilling his mission. He oh, absolutely. Interested. I mean, and it's unfortunate that this construct was his experience with humanity. And I, th- I think he comes to see it in the end. Mm-hmm. For as long as they've been studying us, their unfamiliarity with what it means to be human, they thought that this was the right way to go. <laughs> yeah. So let's take the memories that we were supposed to put into this man of being a serial killer and put it into one of us. That'll teach us what we need to know. Although, how long have they been doing this experiment? That's never really determined. One of those unanswered questions. Yeah, yeah, and something that we never know. Yeah. Do you ever see any children in this movie? <laughs> you, you did not, but Brian and I did because May has a child. Oh, that's not in the theatrical cut? It's not in the theatrical. Interesting. Ah, so okay. May has a child who is who is trying to stay... May tries to keep her out of sight of the Johns, and no pun intended. But again, around John Murdoch, everything comes off the rails. And you can see that, that she has a child. The child is in some ways a witness to her murder and draws the picture of the strangers being the one killing her. And so it, Bubstead it, finds her. So There is one other instance where we do see children. We are given a scene that shows the extent of the personalities change and modification that the strangers can do. We see them entering into a room which has right. a couple that are oh. obviously lower class and they've fallen asleep in their soup. Suddenly their clothes have been changed. The table extends. The entire room changed to upper class pillars all around them and they had two children who were sleeping and that's that's the only other time we see kids in this so i mean who knows yeah that couple was an example of some of the worst adr i've ever seen (laughs) oh you Uh, need to you definitely need to watch um gamers 2 darkness rising again because that is the worst love the film the worst can can you at least give a brief explanation of adr brian oh yeah 
Uh, ADR stands for Automatic Dialogue Replacement. And it is something that is done whenever you have a, a scene where something was making too much noise or we lost the soundtrack or something. So they bring the actors back in and while the, they, they show the imagery and while it's going on, they try and lip sync their own lines again. And uh, those two, that was not done very well. <laughs> gotcha. Gosh, I haven't thought of gamers too in forever. But I do have to say that one of my favorite lines is in that scene. This is the rich get richer. They'll probably have maids quarters before the, the night is through. <laughs> yeah. So you know, we should probably wrap this up with discussing our protagonist, John Murdoch. When we're introduced to him, you know, flailing about in the bathtub, I had a moment and I thought, oh, this movie has Oscar Isaacs. I know. He, doesn't, <laughs> he looks just like him, doesn't he? I got all excited for a moment. I'm like, is it him? I mean, he'd have been young in this movie, but still. And then I saw his Rufus Sewell. Sewell. Who, Rufus Sewell. Who Easy I still like. Do what? Easy for you to say. <laughs> One of the things that I really like in the resolution of this film, you know, we really haven't talked about the climax. I think that we kind of need to is because John Murdoch suddenly gets imbued with all of the knowledge of how to use his powers. And so after this angsty existential slog through what does it mean to be a human i don't really know well let's just have a screaming psychic fight with with <laughs> mr book or whomever and just this this wad of psychic energy building between them before there are explosions i mean the end of this was like dragon ball z scream power up bribe to the public <laughs> and i'm not sad about it somehow <sighs> I'm imagining what this looked like on set because you've got air cannons blowing things up and people on wires flying through the air and explosions and smoke and everywhere. And these two actors are standing stock still, just glaring at each other in the middle of all, and that's all they're doing. <laughs> the scene where they've left the bowels of the ship and they're above the city and they're staring at each other. I'm sure the Wachowski brothers saw this in theaters like, huh, I'm going to include this exact same scene. But not until the third movie of a film series I haven't made yet. <laughs> uh, well, what you don't know is they tried to put it in the other two movies, but it just kept getting cut. <laughs> in the resolution, I think it's really amazing that John John has thrown off the old masters. And, you know, there's kind of this this moment where he he stares with that scary Stanley Kubrick smile from a clockwork orange. <laughs> and it's like, it was very creepy. Well, yeah. And there's this thing like, okay, now dude just leveled up. Is he going to throw off the old masters to become the new one? I mean, mm -hmm. is he going to become a, a, a power hungry overlord? And he doesn't, he just becomes someone who remakes the world in his wake and and then goes to the beach and then goes to the beach and in this world that he remakes uncle carl can walk um because anna gets on the bus and uncle carl stands up to offer her the seat mm -hmm. and there's a bus that takes everybody to shell beach he's not a powerful monster he's just someone who creates a better world well and that has been the the theme of his character through the whole thing is that they wanted me to be a monster, but that's just not who I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the bad composite. And I wanted to come back to that uh, at this point because I said 
oh, that's that's a bad composite. And what made it stand out to me was that the scale of the water was just weird and wrong. But as I got to, I was thinking about this as I was making my breakfast this morning. He's never actually seen an ocean. Oh my gosh. I mean, right now, if I told you, you have the power to make an image of the ocean just by thinking about what you remember the ocean looking like, how much like the actual ocean do you think it would be? My guess is not very. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so he's, he's never seen it. He's building it by, you know, sheer force of will. So of course it looks a little bit wrong to somebody who actually knows what it looks like. Your first draft of anything isn't going to look great. Right. <laughs> so, no, I mean, you can I see that for my Dr. Strange costume. I, I think that's a great way of viewing this. To, I think it's a very generous way of viewing this. Like I've, I've never known what was wrong with it, but I was like, okay, yeah, that's obvious. Um, but without knowing what makes it obvious, it's a scale. The, the waves are too large. That makes sense. One thing is kind of touching in that scene with all this power that he has, like he wants them to bring his wife back, but there is no bringing back. And so there's this wonderful open ending of, well, he has, he's going to meet her all over again. I I think that's kind of sweet. And kind of for the first time as a real meeting, because he never met her the first time really anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if there's anyone that deserves a little bit of happy ending in this film, it's him. Yep. Well, was there anything else that we wanted to say about these characters or this movie? I think we've said quite a lot. I could probably spend another three hours on it, but I'm totally not gonna. (laughs) I've got my whole notes on intro to philosophy that have just stayed, stayed over there that have not come to this point because (laughs) I love you guys. Well, then that will take us to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, get those philosophy notes out. (laughs) I, you know, if it's philosophy versus the zombies, I think that philosophy loses. Um, (laughs) Well, it will if you think that. to be a zombie. (laughs) I, I think, therefore, I am. Well, these zombies aren't thinking. Maybe they aren't here. Oh, no, I'm hurting. Oh, no, I'm one of them. I'm changed. I had a totally different plan for today, but I don't care. (laughs) I think this is where we're at. (laughs) Save the other one. We'll do it another time. Oh, it was very Dark City oriented. No. Okay. Like, no, since the zombies are, the dead are just, uh, are just being piloted by aliens. Surely the only thing to do about against the coming zombie horde is to scream at them psychically. But you know, Hey, there you have it. Now are you happy? You got a twofer oh. for your zombie apocalypse plan of the week. <laughs> and that, I think, will wrap it up for us. Thank you all again for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what's the Twitter? Uh, we are Arms Geek on Twitter. Please give us a like, a review. It really does help the podcast. And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. 